There is a sign that most of us don't like to see. It's the out of order sign. We don't like to see that out of order sign, especially during specific circumstances. Maybe we have a young child, we're running to the bathroom and we see that out of order sign on it. Maybe we're running on fumes in our car and we go up to the gas station and there's a sign on the, the gas station pump that says out of order. We're really, really hungry or really, really thirsty and we go to that vending machine. We didn't bring lunch to work and there is an out of order sign. Well, for 70 years, we could say that there was an out of order sign on the gates of Jerusalem. The city was under foreign rule by foreign nations. The kings of Israel and Judah had been taken away and most of the people had been departed to foreign lands. We could even say that for 50 years there was not even a sign to hang on in the city of Jerusalem. The wall had been, walls had been leveled, the temple had been destroyed and burnt to the ground. And we're reading today in Ezra chapter 3 about these people, Ezra chapter 3 verses 1 through 6, a group of people trying to take that out of order sign down and they're trying to put a sign up that says God is here. They're trying to put a, an open sign up. And as we read through this here in these six verses, we're going to learn a few things from these people. We're going to learn what it means to be united as a community of people. We're going to learn what it means to follow God's will, even if we feel fearful. And we're going to learn what it means to worship God according to the tradition he gives in Scripture. Now, if we were to summarize the book of Ezra as we've been going through it, if we summarize the whole book, we would say that God allows his people to go back to the land after a period of punishment, and they go there to restore their temple and rebuild their community in Jerusalem. That's kind of how we could summarize the whole book. But these first six chapters of the book of Ezra focus on rebuilding the temple under a man's leadership, a man named Zerubbabel. And we're introduced to this desire to rebuild the temple in chapter 1 where we have a goal described where God stirs in the heart of a pagan king named Cyrus and tells Cyrus and gives Cyrus the idea to let these people go back to their land. Then we read about the, the people deciding to go back that God stirs in the hearts of some of his own people to return to Jerusalem, to Judah. And last week we read about a list of those people, those faithful returners. Last week was a unique experience for some of you to listen to that type of a sermon. It was a unique experience for me to preach that type of a sermon. Seventy verses mostly of names of people. But here in chapter 3 we're seeing that goal not just described but now pursued. The people are in the land of Judah. They go to the city of Jerusalem and they begin to rebuild the temple starting with the altar. So we're going to look first at the people and how they gather. We're going to see these leaders that begin the sacrifices. And then we're going to see how the community celebrates as the temple foundation, as the, the altar is built. So let's look at how the people gather in verse 1 of chapter 3. 
Ezra writes, Now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Now first, it's good to notice the time here that Ezra gives us. It says the seventh month there at the beginning of verse 1. Now the seventh month for us is the month of July as we number our events or our, our months, but the seventh month in the Hebrew calendar is the month Tishri, which takes place about half of September and about half of October. So that's the fall season. These people have just made the journey back from Babylon. Most people say they probably would have left in the early spring. And it was a 900-mile journey back to Jerusalem. And it would take about four months. At least that's how long Ezra says it took him in chapter 7. It took him four months to make this journey. So these people arrive back in the land of Judah. And probably within a couple of weeks or a couple of months, if we follow the timeline here, they arrive to start to work on the altar. Now that seventh month, Tishri, is an important month for Jews. There's three important events that would happen usually in the month of Tishri. There was the event called Rosh Hashanah, which there was their blowing of trumpets, was their, their civil new year where they would celebrate the new year. There was Yom Kippur on Tishri 10, on the 10th day of Tishri. That was the Day of Atonement that we know about from Leviticus 16, where they would let the scapegoat go out into the wilderness. And the third important event in Tishri was Sukkoth. That was the, the festival of tabernacles or the Feast of Booths that they would celebrate for seven days to remind themselves how Israel left Egypt about 900 years before. So the time that these people arrive is shortly after they get back to Jerusalem, to Judah, in the September or October. And we see how not just the time is described, but how these people are together. It says, the sons of Israel were in their cities. The people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, these people were gathered with a unified purpose. These people all gather together to, to start rebuilding the temple. And it kind of appears to be a, a quick transition. If we read chapter 2, verse 70, it says, Now the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, kind of wrapping up that long list we read last week, it says, They lived in their cities and all Israel and their cities. And then chapter 3 begins, Now when the seventh month, Came. So there's almost this quick transition, this sense that they, they get there, they settle quickly, and then they gather for the first of the new year to celebrate together. They don't focus years and years on rebuilding their homes. They don't focus years and years on establishing their businesses or their farms or connecting with old family members they haven't seen. They go to the temple to start to rebuild the altar. A couple years ago, my family and I, we went to the beach for a trip. We had a house there that someone helped us rent for really cheap. And we had this plan that we were going to go to the beach house. And our first day, we would unpack and we'd go to the grocery store and we'd plan our meals and kind of get everything laid out. But we got there and we realized we're just going to go to the beach. So we left our luggage there. We went to the beach for four or five hours and we went out to dinner. 
It's kind of the same idea here, but it's not a vacation for these people, but it's dedication. They get back in the land and they almost immediately go to the city, to the temple, to begin worshiping God. And we see these people that worship is done in community with unity. The people are all together focused on one task. Now with 50,000 people that return, they likely all weren't completely unified, but they, they are focused on one thing. That is beginning their worship to God together. There's an old Dilbert cartoon I was able to clip out of our newspaper. It's not in the newspaper anymore, but I clipped this one a couple years ago. The boss, who has those uh, two black little hair thingies sticking up, goes to Wally. He says, Wally, I'm putting you in charge of testing our new drug in a large-scale, randomized, controlled study. Wally replies, sure, boss. What result do you want me to give to you? The boss replies, you're almost too perfect for this job. Wally says, thank you. Now, we might not agree with the ethics of what they're doing, but at least they're both on the same page. They've got the same goal. And for us, you know, that's for us. How can we be unified as a church? How can we be focused on worshiping God? These people understood that it's important to put minor issues of disagreement to the background so that we can bring the main issue of agreement to the foreground, which was worshiping God. For us, because we read the New Testament, we know that the New Testament tells us to embrace God's word into our lives, to embody God's kingdom and look different, to evangelize others and share our faith, to encourage one another. Those are things we can be unified on. And we see unity in the first century church as Jesus ascends and goes to heaven in chapter 1 of Acts. In chapter 2, we read about the unity of the church. Chapter 2, verse 44 says, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, it says. In Acts chapter 5, verse 32, it says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. They were all one soul. Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 says, he tells the Philippian believers, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, so whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Max Licato says that unity matters to God. The father does not want his kids to squabble. And sometimes we need to give ourselves permission to say no to things that maybe are creative or, or cool in a church, but don't bring unity to a church. Maybe we need to give ourselves permission in church to say no to things that we simply know will be divisive or disruptive. Sometimes we need to sacrifice our wants or our needs for the sake of bringing unity within the body. And that's what we see these people doing here. They're worshiping together as a community with unity. So the people gather there in verse 1, and then we see these leaders that begin the sacrifices in verses 2 and half of verse 3. 
We read, Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt sacrifices on it. Now we see two directors here that we've come across these two guys a little bit already in the book of Ezra. One is Jeshua, the same man called Joshua, and Haggai and Zechariah. We'll come across those two guys in chapter 5, Haggai and Zechariah. And then Zerubbabel, the man we've met as the kind of the popular political leader that's taking the people back to Jerusalem. But Jeshua here is listed first, probably to show the prominence that this is a spiritual activity, that rebuilding the temple is a special task. And so Jeshua is just kind of designated first in the list here of one probably organizing this primarily along with Zerubbabel. And these two directors, they have a desire. We read about in verse 2. They want to build the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. Their desire is to build the altar, and I gave you a picture of what this altar might have looked like back then. It was about seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet long, so kind of like a big family dinner room table. It had to be made of uncut stones with no steps on it, just a flat surface. And this is where the, the Jews would offer their sacrifices. The different sacrifices, maybe it was a sign of thanksgiving and gratefulness, so they would give a grain offering or their first fruits or first harvest as an offering to God. Maybe as a sign of spiritual dedication, they'd give what was called a whole burnt offering. Or if they simply wanted to express their communion with God, they would give what was called a peace offering. Or even at times, probably the ones we're most familiar with, were the substitute offerings where an animal would be placed on the altar and sacrificed and blood was shed. And those substitution sacrifices were important because they showed the people that the wages of sin was death. A very graphic way where they would put the animal on the altar, they would lay their hands on the head of the animal, and they would slaughter the animal. And as the blood shed down, it was a very clear picture. The payment for your sins is death. And the way your sins are atoned for is the shedding of blood. It was a picture as an image for them. Just as Christ became that picture, that sacrifice and that substitution on our behalf. Now, an animal being sacrificed didn't really do anything, obviously, for a Jewish person, but it was their faith in God and belief in God and the image of that animal being sacrificed. Like, the animal didn't actually save them, just as it's our faith in Christ that saves us. The same thing transfers both ways. But notice Jeshua and Zerubbabel, they want to do this in the correct way. In verse 2, it says that they burnt, offered these offerings as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. These people want to worship God, but they want to worship God in the right and correct way. And they do it here on the right kind of altar made of uncut stones in the right location, the original site of the, the temple and the altar with the correct sacrifices offered by the correct people, the priest. That's why Jeshua is mentioned there as the, the priest. 
But there's danger that these directors experience. Their desire to worship God brings danger. And we read about that in verse 3. It says, So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. These men risk disturbance instead of waiting to sacrifice things later. This is a little bit of foreshadowing because these people, they're called enemies in chapter 4, verse 1, are probably people that already live in the land, Moabites, Amorites, Sumerians, Edomites. And when these 50,000 Jews come back to their land, it probably provided disruption to the local economy and the relationships going on there. There's some danger these people experience, but it doesn't stop them, at least at this point in time. We'll read as we go along a little more. Eventually, the people stop because of these enemies. But at this time, worship is still done in spite of their fear that they have. Worship is done in spite of their fear. And that word for fear there in verse 3 is used 17 times in the Old Testament and other places. And in the five locations I could find it in, in a lexicon, each of those five places translated it not as fear, but as terror. That same Hebrew word, emma. And throughout the history of Israel, they were people that faced a lot of fear, if we think about it. Noah building that ark among the, all the wicked people living around him, ridiculing him. Abram that went from his land and Ur of the Chaldeans all the way to Judah, where he didn't know anyone. Elijah that challenged the prophets of Baal to a, a literal duel between their gods. But in spite of that fear, the Israelites were people that, that still worshipped God in spite of their fear. And here it's like they're saying, let's build this temple and then we'll build everything else. Let's build this temple and then we'll worry about our enemies. Matthew Henry in his commentary says, Let worldly business be postponed to the business of religion and the business of the world will prosper better. These people knew that it was their worship of God or their lack of it that led them to the exile. And now they come back and they're determined to get at least one thing right. And that's their worship of God. And for us, that applies to us too. Right? God expects our obedience in spite of the costs we might perceive that there will be. Now, we learned from 1 Peter, you might say, but you taught us in 1 Peter that we, we obey the people over us and we obey government authorities. It's good to remember in the context of Ezra, they have permission from the governmental authority, Cyrus, to rebuild their temple. So they can stand up against anybody locally because they have the king's permission to do what they're doing. So following their example, we need to also worship in spite of fear we might have. Maybe we pray before our meal, even when we know our boss is not a Christian, when we're going out to lunch with him or her. We give money to church, even when we know our spouse doesn't like us too. We bring our Bible to school with us, even we're, though we're not allowed to share our faith or talk about it. We go to church, even if no one else in our family goes. We worship in spite of the fear we might experience. So the people are gathering in unity. The leaders begin these sacrifices. 
Then we see how the community of people begins celebrating and worshiping God together. In the last half of verse 3 through verse 6. And we read about the burnt offerings in verse 3. It says, They offered burnt offerings to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Now these daily sacrifices were of sometimes a lamb, flour, wine, or oil, and they would usually do in the morning and then in the evening and ask for the Lord's protection and pray for the Lord's blessings of their lives. What we see here is these people, their desire is to offer sacrifice before the temple is even built. They go back to build a temple, but it's not about the building, it's about worshiping God. They've got a seven and a half foot table is all they have, but they're already worshiping God. Then we read about the Feast of Booths in chapter 4, these people celebrate. They celebrated the Feast of Booths as it was written and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance as each day required. Now again, this is the seventh month. It's called here in our text, which is September to October. Tishri, which is the month that they would have called it. And they have Rosh Hashanah, the New Year's Day where they would blow trumpets and celebrate the new year. They would not work. Kind of sounds like us for New Year's, right? Except fireworks. A little louder than trumpets, maybe. A little more disruptive to our sleep. They give grain offerings and they offer a male goat as a sin offering as part of Rosh Hashanah. Now, the one that they don't celebrate that I mentioned earlier was Yom Kippur because that required different parts of the temple and different organizational things to go on. So they don't celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That's not mentioned. But they do celebrate what's called Sukkoth. From Tishri 15 to Tishri 22, it was a seven-day festival. What we probably know better is the Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of Shelters or the Festival of Booths. It was a seven-day festival where the Jews would live in huts or little makeshift shelters for seven days as a way to remember how their ancestors, the Israelites, had left Egypt and didn't have homes to live in. But God provided for them and sustained them. It was a way to relive that event. About 189 animals would usually be sacrificed over those seven days. They also would commemorate it with the autumn harvest and bring the first fruits and first first crops that were harvested in the fall and give them to God. Zechariah in chapter 14 says that this is an event that actually will be celebrated in the millennial kingdom in Revelation chapter 20. It will be fulfilled again then. And these festivals were important because they set Israel apart. They made them distinct. It was also used by God as a way to remind God of the, remind them of their history. We don't celebrate those now, of course, because Christ has fulfilled them and fulfilled these festivals. And we also don't really see the New Testament affirm these practices when you come to the letters uh, from Acts through Revelation. We don't see these events really practiced or encouraged or taught about for the two reasons I shared earlier. But these people, they continue. There's more things that they celebrate. Verse 5 mentions new moon offerings. Afterward, there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord 
that were consecrated, and from everyone who offered a free will offering to God. These new moon sacrifices are described in Leviticus 28, and there's a ton of different sacrifices they gave according to that chapter. Then we read about more burnt offerings in verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. A lot of different offerings and a lot of things given to God. When you go through and you add up these different offerings and different gifts, the people of Israel would give not just a tenth of their income to God, it was more like 32 to 40% of their income. They regularly gave to God through all of these different offerings and givings and animals and grain and peace offerings. But the point I want to show us from these verses and probably all six verses is that worship is done according to tradition based on Scripture. We see these people, their worship is done according to tradition based on Scripture. Notice a few key phrases. Let me read them to you as they begin offering these sacrifices. First, it's done as written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they did that and they set up the altar on its foundation based on the law. Then in verse 4, it says they celebrated the Feast of Booths as it is written. And they did that according to the ordinance that was laid out by God. Then in verse 5, it says the festivals they celebrated were the ones that the Lord consecrated. These people are back in the land of Jerusalem. They don't go to a new location. They don't design a new altar they don't come up with a new strategy, but their desire is to worship God, following God's direction in his word, which is also the tradition of their people. I was talking with the guy, one of the guys from Youth Dynamics a while ago, and he told me about this young man that had been coming there for a while that grew up Mormon, and the young man had been coming to Youth Dynamics listening to the sermons for a while, and the, the young man told the worker at Youth Dynamics, he said, I like listening to you because what you say doesn't change over time, right? Because there's a little background in the Mormon church that it kind of shifts and changes based on who's the bishop and who's in charge and how they're going to try to change their PR image. But that young man picked up on something that Christianity has historic beliefs that have stayed the same for 2000 years. And tradition is a good thing, especially as it relates to doctrine, as long as tradition is not elevated above God's word. See, tradition is good. It reminds us that our problems we experience are not new problems. It reminds us of what's important. It reminds us of the greatness and power of God, and it reminds us of what we believe. Yet some people don't like tradition, and even in church, they want to stay so far away from tradition, they come up with creative things, and you sometimes see what they do, and you wonder if that's even a church or even honors God at all. There was a church in Cincinnati I saw some video clips from this week, this guy commenting on them, and he made these comments. I thought, surely these things can't be going on in a church, right? So I googled the name of the church. I went and found that day of their service and I watched it and they had done this Super Bowl Sunday themed service. 
where there was three people that came out and they're each on a team and they start the service by the three people running down the aisles of the church, high-fiving everyone like they're Richard Sherman and Russell Wilson. And then each of the three people begin these two-minute sermons. And it's a competition for whose sermon is best and they score points. And then they do a halftime show where they sing a, a rap usher song about being in a club with honeys or whatever they call them now. I don't know. I don't know the right terminology. Then there is a country song about drinking whiskey and beer and having friends in lowly places. And then they sang a Miley Cyrus song and they had a chain coming from the top on a big wrecking ball. And the guy that was the referee for the pretend football game jumps on the wrecking ball and he's swinging across the stage as he's singing the Miley Cyrus song. Now it's okay to be culturally relevant to want to reach people and get people to hear the gospel but you sometimes see those things and you wonder is that what we should do within the 90 minutes we come to gather to worship God some of my more sanctified thoughts about that service where you know at church we we read God's Word we teach God's Word we pray we sing songs to God that's worked for 2,000 years do we really need to go that far to do other things? So as we wrap up our time together here, I know the Old Testament can be a little hard to, to understand and even for me to read about some of these festivals and different things the Jews did in the land. But I want to end our time with the image of, a, of an ocean liner, of a ship. If we picture a ship with that metaphor as it applies here to Ezra, I think. See, we've said that worship is done in spite of our fear. One person has said that taming fear is kind of like trying to tuck an octopus into bed. It doesn't usually cooperate. And if an ocean liner could think and feel, it would probably never leave the dock it was built in, right? There's big, crazy storms, loud, frightening, lightning, big waves but an ocean liner still goes out to sea and if sailors let their fear control them they probably would never go out to sea either but they do that because they trust the boat and they trust the people in them and for us for us to worship in spite of our fear we need to ask do we do we trust our god to the point we worship him in spite of our fear we've also said that worship is done in community with unity Life on an ocean is rough, but no one wants to be on a ship with a bunch of bickering sailors, right? We want to be on a ship where the sailors and workers are all on the same page, working in the same direction. If half of them decide to, to sail north and half decide to sail south, that probably wouldn't work very good. And for us, are we working together as a church in community with unity to try to worship God together. We've also read from Ezra that worship is done according tradition based on scripture, right? A, a boat, it's designed to stay on top of the water, right? It's not a submarine that goes below the water, even though they both have a little bit on each side, right? We follow the traditions given to us in Scripture. And the captain of a ship follows the designs of the maker of the ship. If he wants it to go faster and he calls the chef up and says, Take us faster, it's probably not going to work well. 
needs to call the engine room and get them to speed up the boat. And the church doesn't try to act like a business or try to be hip or cool or cute. We are designed by our maker to, to worship God and celebrate him. So we ask, is our worship done according to God's methods and his word, according to tradition within the church? Or is it done according to man's creative, culturally entertaining methods? See, we as believers in the 21st century need to be sailors in our church with a focus. Our goal is to keep the boat afloat and moving towards the destination that God has for us. And we do that by getting along with each other, by being diligent to do our jobs even when it's difficult. And to focus on those time-tested methods that God gives us in Scripture that we do regardless of how other people might interpret them, that honor God and follow the tradition in His Word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these stories from the book of Ezra embedded in history about these people that followed your prompting in their lives, that returned back to the land, that followed you even when they were scared, even when they probably weren't sure what to do. I pray that you would give us that same courage that they had to worship you in spite of their fear. I pray you would help us to be a, a community of believers that has unity focused on you, focused on worshiping you and honoring you. I pray you would help us to be a church that, that worships you based on the tradition in your, in your word that's based on scripture. That it's okay to do new things as long as they follow your word and, and honor you in the process. I pray for our church that you would Help us as we learn about these people, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the many others named in chapter 2, to be people of faith following you in this way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll invite you to stand, if you're able, for the benediction, and we'll be dismissed. Let us go in peace and in praise. Let us praise the Lord as his creation. Let us praise the Lord just as his heavens, sun, moon, stars, and his angels praise him. Let us praise the Lord. Amen.